I'm going to begin by reading the dedication. I mean, I don't know. How many read the dedication page usually? You just kind of get right into it. But it says, Dear friend, I'm writing for you an orderly account of what Jesus the Anointed One accomplished and fulfilled among us. Several eyewitness biographies have already been written, using as their source material the good news preached among us by his early disciples who served the word with their very lives. Since I have meticulously investigated all the reports in close detail, starting from the story's beginning, I decided to write it all out for you. Most honorable Theophilus, so you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt the reliability of what you were taught. During the reign of the king Herod the Great over Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah who served in the temple as part of the priestly order of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also from a family of priests, being a direct descendant of the first and great priest Aaron. Together they lived honorably before God, careful in keeping to the ways of the commandments and enjoying a clear conscience before God. But they were childless, since Elizabeth was barren. And now they were both quite old. One day, while Zechariah's priestly order was on duty and he was carrying out his priestly duties before God, it happened by the casting of lots according to the custom of the priesthood that the honor fell upon Zechariah to enter the holy place and burn the prayers of incense before God. The congregation was gathered and praying outside the temple at the hour when the incense was being offered. Out of nowhere, an angel of the Lord appeared before Zechariah, standing just to the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was startled and paralyzed with fear. But the angel reassured him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Elizabeth, your wife, will bear you a son. You are to name him John, which means God is showing grace to you. You're going to leap like a gazelle for joy, and not only you, many will delight in his birth. He'll achieve great stature with God. He'll drink neither wine nor beer. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many sons and daughters of Israel back to their God, and he will go before the Lord as a forerunner with the same power and anointing as Elijah the prophet. He'll be instrumental in turning the hearts of parents to children and kindle devout understanding among hardened skeptics. He'll get the people ready for the Lord's appearing. Zechariah said to the angel, Do you expect me to believe this? I'm an old man and my wife is too old to give me a child. Give me a sign and, and prove it. Then the angel said, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. He has sent me to announce to you this good news. But because you won't believe me, you'll be stricken silent, and I'm not able to speak until the day my words have been fulfilled and a child has been born to you. Every word I've spoken to you will come true on time, at God's appointed time. That will be your sign. Your proof. 
Meanwhile, the congregation waiting for Zechariah, they were getting restless, wondering what was keeping him so long in the sanctuary. And when he came out and couldn't speak, they knew he had seen a vision. He continued speechless and had to use sign language with the people. And when the course of his priestly assignment was completed, he went back home. Soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for about five months. She exclaimed with joy, See how kind and loving God is to remedy my unfortune and take away the disgrace of my barrenness. Well, now it's time to go to sleep. No, just kidding. (laughs) That's just one story. That's just one story of a number of stories we'll be looking at. But what I want you to know is um, this idea of when you listen to it, it almost sounds unbelievable as we read these stories of angels and all these kind of words of prophecy being spoken true. But I want you to note, when I said the word unbelievable, if you look at the dictionary, um, it means so remarkable to strain credulity. It is something that is so extraordinary and unusual, one can hardly believe it. Bordering on improbable. And yet, when you read this, the author, Luke, begins this letter with a statement. And I said the dedication, kind of a preface to all the stories that he is going to write in which we will be hearing. But what he is writing is not only credible and well-researched and verifiable, But he actually says these are stories you can believe with certainty. In fact, if you go to verse 4, Luke gives the purpose behind these stories because in verse 4 he says that he is writing to give you an orderly account and he's writing to the most honorable Theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Let me tell you just a few things you need to know about this, this book called Luke, this letter that he writes to Theophilus. Luke was probably a Gentile, which means he was non-Jewish by birth. He was well-educated in Greek culture. In in fact, the first four verses are incredible classical Greek writing. He was a physician by profession. In fact, if you read Colossians chapter 4.14, Paul says at one point, our dear friend, the doctor, sends his greetings. In fact, Luke was a companion of Paul and traveled on many of the missionary journeys with Paul and at times would just stay behind and then catch up later. He was probably one of Paul's earliest converts and ended up being one of his most loyal friends. See, after others had deserted Paul when he was in prison, Paul at one point writes in 2 Timothy verse four, chapter 4, verse 11, he says, only Luke is with me. All the others have left and deserted me. And Luke was well-traveled. He probably met many of the early disciples, those apostles. He had met many eyewitnesses, people who lived in the land, who experienced and saw all that Jesus did. He was also more than likely, and in, in, as you read back and, you can, and scholars will tell us, it's more than likely, even when he was in Ephesus, when John took Mary to Ephesus, he spent time hearing about Mary's stories from Mary herself. 
And so as we come into this this letter, you have this guy, Luke, who's writing it, and and he's saying, I'm writing this in such a way that it is both orderly from the beginning to the end, and it's meticulously investigated, most honorable Theophilus. And so you wonder, who is this Theophilus guy? Well, the name Theophilus is, is a combination of two Greek words, theos and philia. You think of theology, which is the study of God, and philosophy, the love of wisdom, or Philadelphia, city of what? Brotherly love. So he's writing to this guy, and he's calling him God lover, God's friend. Whether that was his literal name or not, I'm guessing it probably was. Scholars go back and forth. But he then puts this little title, most excellent or most honored. And that gives us a little bit of a clue that this probably was a person. He wasn't just writing to a group of people. Because if you go into different portions of the New Testament, you'll see a couple times that this title is used. In fact, in Acts chapter 23, verse 26, a letter from the commander Claudius Lysias is sent to the governor Felix, and it begins in, Acts, in, the, in the story of Acts, it says it begins to his excellency, excellency, Governor Felix. You can find also in Acts chapter 26, verse 25, Paul, while defending himself before a Roman official, begins by saying, most excellent, most honorable Festus, what I am saying is true and reasonable. So Luke is writing this letter to a person who's probably of high standing, high position, very wealthy, and and most likely could have been a Roman official. We're not sure where it's written to, but we know it's written to this man, Theophilus. Now here's what I think is really interesting. Most excellent Theophilus was more than likely a benefactor, a patron. You know, like the patron of the arts, we, we, we talk about someone who is a patron of the arts, meaning someone who, is, who, who, do, who donates money to keep a starving artist from what? Starving. Well, and, and that day when, when someone wanted a book researched and developed and written, they would actually be a benefactor, pay someone to do it. And so most likely, Theophilus was Luke's publisher, gave him the money to do the research, to do what needed to be done, to put together an account So he commissioned Luke to write this letter. And then Luke goes ahead and he probably had two letters written. He may have written the first one and he got it. It's the story of Jesus from the beginning to the end. And he's commissioned then to write another one, which is called the book of Acts. And that's the story of the church's beginning. And so he's writing to Theophilus and those first four verses are a kind of dedication, which was very common in that day. When someone would commission someone to write a book or write and do some research, they would start out with a dedication with both why they're doing it and thanking often the person who gave them the ability to do it. Now, we do that a lot in our own books, don't we? You ever read that first dedication page? A lot of times, you know, thank you to my wife who suffered with me through this process. And then near the end, a lot of times we'll say thank you to my editors. So you can see through history that really hasn't changed much. But what I want you to know is that it begins with this dedication to the person who's paying for this well-researched, orderly account. And the opening paragraph is not just a dedication, but an explanation for the reason Luke is writing. See, at that time, around 60 to 70 AD, when they think this was written, what was happening 
was after they would go and they'd share these stories and Paul and Luke would go to these different places, there would become other, other stories would enter, oral stories, which would be told by word of mouth. And, and then from time to time, someone would write a fragment about a story, and they'd get that fragment of writing. And, and then they would hear of their traditions, and they'd, they'd begin to wonder, and I'm sure they were saying, well, what's really true? What can we count on? What can we bank on as being accurate? And so Theophilus, this Roman official who has the funds to do so, goes ahead and says, publish for me, Dr. Luke, an account so that both he and others and you and I can know beyond the shadow of a doubt the reliability of what you've been taught. You see, there's some first, those first four verses, there are some key phrases in there that are important to understand. And they're kind of technical words. He begins and he says at one point that he's drawn up an account of the things that have been fulfilled. See, Luke is determined to show through frequent allusions to the Old Testament and even to the prophecies of the Old Testament that these new acts of God that he's writing about are completely consistent and consonant with what's happened in the Old Testament and what's being predicted and what is alluded to. And then he writes these words, handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. And many of these stories are from the first-hand eyewitness accounts. And, and he's basically saying they're not hearsay. I didn't get them from hearsay. In fact, if they are, like a good editor, I'm going to kind of take those out. Understand this. Luke, who was a doctor, was trained in the Harvards or Stanfords of his day. He understood research. He understood this idea of verification. Because he writes carefully, meticulously, these have been investigated. In a sense, he's saying it's complete and extends back to the very beginning of Jesus' earthly life. Most excellent Theophilus, I want to give you this book. I'm so excited to give it to you. And you have now the desire, if you want, Theophilus, to publish it and make it known to others, which he must have done because we have it today. So it begins this way in these first four verses, and it sounds rather unbelievable, but he says, let's believe it, because it's been thoroughly researched, it's been attested to, it's historically verifiable. And so as I was thinking about this, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if I asked a couple of journalists, you know, who do investigative reporting, we have a couple who have actually um, co-anchored on news stations and have been trained in all this, so I, I asked them, I said, what, what do you think about this letter Luke and what he wrote? And, and I got some interesting answers back. I love Luke, says one. He, he's the first investigative journalist recorded in history. This was the focus of my last three years in my news career. Luke does exactly what a journalist is taught to do. Tell the audience what you're going to cover, then track down the sources and do your own interviews. As an investigator journalist, as an investigative journalist, the goal is not to bring any bias to the topic so, you, so that what you can do is then follow the facts, tell a story about what you've uncovered. This requires um, getting second opinions, interviewing skeptics, asking tough questions for the purpose of crafting a compelling story. Another says, what impresses me about Luke is that it assures his readers that he set out to get the story right by telling them that he has done his research and spent time with the eyewitnesses. Luke was big on details. I thought this was kind of interesting. More details bring more certainty. And if you go through Luke, you'll see there's some specific details. Even the words he uses are medical words at times. 
As a journalist, we are often challenged with what details we can share in a story and what details need to be left out due to space and time. Luke assures us that he has compiled an orderly account and he's telling us what we need to know. Another says, at KSTP, my scripts and stories had to go to attorneys before they aired. Praise God, I don't have to deal with my messages. Anyway, my team and I had to be able to prove that we had enough facts that the story would hold up if and often when we were sued. While my stories did hit litigation, I never lost it. A little bit of digging. Anyway, um, in this case, Luke's task was much bigger. Build a case for the future generations that Jesus was who he said he was. It wasn't stories. It was fact. What a job. Luke didn't have the power of video or photographs, so going to the witnesses and building a case was all he had to work with. And this individual ends, I think Walter Concrete would approve of the case Luke built in the story he told. So let's get into the story. That's the dedication. That's the prep. These stories is what Luke is telling us. They may sound unbelievable, but guess what? They are believable. In the time of Herod, verse 5, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Herod the Great reigned about 37 to about 4 BCE. His kingdom included Samaria and Galilee and Perea and some outlying areas. And this event was Zach and Liz, let's kind of call them by what they were known by, um, happened about 7 or 6 BCE. And what's important to note is a little bit about their background. Both of them came from the line of priests. In fact, the highest order of priests, like they could actually trace their lineage all the way back to Aaron, Moses' brother. And he also tells us a little bit about Zechariah. Zechariah goes back to Abijah. And Abijah was around the time of David. In the time of David, they built the temple. In order to to have the temple when it was built with Solomon and and to take care of it, they needed to come up with a plan to care for it. So they divided the priests into 24 different units. And one of the top of one of the units of 24 was a man named Abijah. And that's who Zechariah traces his lineage back to. Quite a pedigree. Verse 6, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But, all in those stories, they sometimes just have a, a but. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. She was barren. And they were both very, underline old, devout, faithful, you might say even possibly a bit legalistic. One other glaring detail, she was barren, Elizabeth. And, and often they would say, the woman was barren, you know, guy got away with, you know, that's not my fault. But in, in that day and age, that was often viewed, and a woman would carry it with such disgrace. It was a sign of God's displeasure. To be childless meant that you were, you were not being blessed, you were not being fruitful, and, and they were carrying this sense. But I think the scripture is put here in such a way that they want us to know they were devout and they were, they were people of faith. They were people who observed God's law and his commands in order for there to be this sense that it wasn't due to anything about themselves. Which I guess kind of say sometimes when you're in a fruitless period, your life maybe feels barren. 
and you're following God with all your heart, God might be doing something else. It's not about you. Well, then you come to verse 8. When, when Zechariah's division was on duty, so now his division's called. He's down from where he lived. They go to Jerusalem where they stay um, in the quarters of where the priest would stay. And he's on duty and he's serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. I just, if I was putting a title of this, this was, this was Zachariah's lucky day. Zach hit the Powerball. Seriously, this, this is, they're drawing lots. And, 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 and Zach, this is a once in a lifetime experience. Do you know that in the day of Christ, it, it's estimated there was probably 20,000 priests. So for one priest to go into the holy place, to do it even once in their lifetime was a big deal. So in order that there wouldn't be kind of a political kind of stuff going on and they wouldn't have to do ballot recounts and things like that, they would draw lots and everyone would see and that lot fell to Zachariah and it was Zachariah's lucky day. He was going into the holy place. This was a big deal. Because every day when they would do this, they would in twice a day, in the morning and the evening, they would go in and they would come into the holy place, into the right of the holy place. They would burn the incense. And some of you maybe come from a more um, formal background where you know, some of your traditions, whether Greek Orthodox or Catholic or some of those traditions, where they actually they swing this thing and it has incense burning in it, it's, it and you can smell the fragrance of it. There's a sense that they come in and they burn the incense and the incense would smell and it would, it would, you could, it was so pungent you could smell it all over the place and the people would stand on the outside and as those incense were going up it represented all the people's prayers on the outside. That God was so present as they prayed that he heard. It was a very visceral, a very kind of um, sensual kind of thing. God could smell the sacrifice. God could, could understand their heart. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. I bet you he was more than startled. Some say he was paralyzed with terror. Can you imagine coming up? Eh, okay, this is a big deal. I'm coming into the presence of God. You're scared to come into the presence of God because, you know, uh, they even said when, uh, when the priest would go in, they would tie a rope to him in case he died in there because of a sin, whatever. Anyway, he's in there. He's lighting the incense. He looks up, and there standing in front of him is an angel. And he didn't even have to wonder, like, who got under the, you know, who got in here? He immediately is recognizing this is something huge, great, big. It's unbelievable. This past week I had lunch with someone who had been who's been attending our church and is here this morning. And uh, they've been attending since this past May. He has specifically. And he written me an email and thanked me and you as well for the ministry of the church. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to grab lunch with him and, and just connect with him. 
And as I often do when I meet with someone, I have a cup of coffee with him, I asked him, so tell me your story. And so he began to share with me a number of things, told me that he was just a dissertation away from a PhD. That's a big deal. So he was just one dissertation when he had medical problems. And those medical problems and other things kept him from finishing that. He was working on it down in, uh, at a university down in Georgia. And as he was sharing with me, he told me at one point, because I said, you know, tell me a little bit about your spiritual journey. He says, you know, at one point a number of years ago, 15 or so plus years ago, I was sitting at the table, I was doing research, and as I was sitting at the table, I heard this voice. And he was trying to describe it to me, and I asked him later to email me because I wanted to get my facts correct in case a lawyer looked at this anyway. He said, I heard the most strange and majestic voice out of nowhere. Then this voice said, you have faith but no commitment. And he's telling this story. And he's going, I just said, I wanted, I looked around. I'm thinking there's got to be someone in the room with me. It was just so, he, and he's again trying to describe it. It had this weight to it, this, this elegance. This, and, 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 he, and he said, I even wanted to go outside because it was just so present. And he told me, um, and I asked him, I said, have you been going to church? He said, no. And, and then he shared with me through the years as he kind of was in his journey, as he's seeking and, and spiritually beginning to kind of, wonder and reach out that another time when he was on a plane he heard the voice again and here's the the portion of the email he wrote to me that caused me to want to ask him to grab some coffee and something to eat good morning pastor meyer my name is alaric takva a west african from liberia who attends wise free church my wife and my daughter and I are in the process of taking up membership at Wyzetta Free. I was invited to the church when I came to Minnesota in May this year. It has been a great privilege and blessing. Wyzetta Free has a transform, has ha, is having a transforming impact on me and my family. The authenticity of the teaching, the genuine friendship of fellow church members. The people's genuine concern for others were really touched. We look forward to exploring more at Wyzetta Free and cultivating, listen to this, our commitment as well. Because a voice said you have faith, but no commitment. That sounds a little unbelievable, right? Is it possible that God might work outside our tightly drawn theological boxes? I want you to really think about it. How might you be boxing God in today, in your life? Where are you placing limitations upon what God wants to do in and through you? Where are you kind of drawing a line and saying, God, you know, you can't reach that person. God, I'm in a place of barrenness, but you really can't do anything about this. Do you still believe in a supernatural God who can come in and actually speak to your hearts? Do you know that God wants to speak to your hearts? Do you know that God is a very personal God? Right? You know, he's given us his Holy Spirit and his Holy Spirit speaks to us. It's not about going through motion. It's not about a bunch of routines. It's not just trying to follow some laws and be a good person. It's about something much greater. It's about Jesus who loves you and is with you. And guess what? Sometimes experiences happen as he's lighting the incense altar. He's standing before him and he's scared to death because he has an encounter with the living God. Where's your box smaller than his box? 
Maybe it's how you've boxed in your marriage or a child that seems to be wayward. Or maybe it's crazy uncle or aunt who's coming this Christmas. Or the person you work with, and you kind of go, I, I, I can never see God touching that person's heart. And he's saying, I want you to know God so much and for him to live in you so much that the light of who he is and the personalness of his presence will cause them to go, what is going on in you? Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. And I wonder if in some ways he's going, what prayer? I think he's probably looking a little confused and he's wondering in his mind, um, what prayer do you think? And, and, and I think the angel's probably thinking, you know, Zach, the prayer you and your wife have been praying from 18 to about 50, that prayer. But before he can say anything, he tells him what the prayer is. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. My guess is that when he was there and he was praying, he was praying for the people and part of the people and the prayer he was praying for involved himself and the angel came to him and said, guess what? You're going to be a part of the answer to that prayer. I'm going to give you a child. I often think God answers our prayers even when we've given up. Isn't he good and gracious? There's some prayers you've given up on? Are there some prayers you can see? I just don't have the faith to keep going on on this one. And God comes and goes, that's okay, I do. I do. You know that he was probably about seven years of age and so was his wife. So you've got to give him a little, cut a little slack here, right? And then the angel goes on and tells him a little bit about this child. Verse 14, he will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth and for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born and he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. There are so many Old Testament allusions and so many prophetic words in those little statements there that Luke has included in what he has been told when he was with an eyewitness around this. In fact, this, this occurrence, what's happening with Zechariah and Elizabeth, is almost parallel. You can go to Judges chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, and you'll see the, the, that, that same kind of angel as it comes to, to, to a family and tells them about Samson, that you're going to have a child for a particular task. This parallels that. And Zechariah should have known that. And besides other Old Testament quotes, the final verse of the Old Testament found in Malachi says this. Listen, the final verse is, is what is being said here. In, in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, he says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. And then verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Now, you've got to note something. Mary asks a similar question, but she's not, she's not doubting in the sense, prove it to me. She's saying, I don't get it. How is it going to happen? And so the angel explains. He's going on and says, prove it to me. And of all people, he should have probably understood. Mary's about 15. Think about it. Mary's about 15. She's probably had little experience with God. She's a peasant girl with a peasant kind of, with probably no education at all. And here's Zachariah. He's no spring chicken. He's probably close to seven years of age. He has a seminary degree. He's in full-time ministry. 
He's had all kinds of years and experience in following the Lord. He has a religious pedigree. And beyond that, he was well-versed in the unbelievable stories of God, the Abraham and Sarah and other areas of barrenness where God supplies, as well as the Moses and the ten plagues and the freeing of the people from Pharaoh and Egypt and also go on just to, to the you know, parting of the red, the, the sea of reeds, and, and you can go on and he sees all these stories of God, even the stories of David and Goliath and the stories of Elijah and Elisha and Daniel and the lion's den and story after story that should generate faith. And beyond that, he's standing in this place, and before him is an angel, and he's saying, I don't believe it. And Zach has the gall to say, prove it to me. And I just ask you to think for a second, is there something in your life that God has given you so much evidence that he's saying, It's your turn to take and step in obedience. And I love what the angel Gabriel says. Then the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. Can you hear? I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Look, buddy. Your job is to smile, laugh, trust, and obey. So here's the proof. Now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe in my words, which will come true at the appointed time, which is always God's time. Don't you, don't you hate that part, though? It's God's time, not yours. And meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zachariah and wondering why he had stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. What we're not told about, if you go to verse 62, is not only could he not speak, he probably couldn't hear because they say when they wanted to name the child, they had to make sign language to him. They couldn't speak to him because he couldn't hear. He was in total silence. God said, I'm just going to create silence in your world. And you have to understand why. And there's all kinds of explanations. I'm just going to give you one, I think, possibly, is because he didn't want any longer Zachariah to speak doubt into Elizabeth's life. Elizabeth somehow hears the story, whether it's written out on the tablet or whatever, hears the story, and she believes. She hears the word of God and says, I trust it. Silence is exactly what he's been given because Elizabeth, I think, needed her trust to grow. The promise, the word of God grows in the womb of faith. So when his time of service was completed, he returned home and after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away his grace among my people, secluded for five months. God wanted her, I think, to be separate. So what grew in her was not just a baby, but her faith. And I just ask you from my heart, are you, I mean, this is why we come and worship. We talk about three things in church often, coming together in worship and being in a place where we open our hearts to God so we can begin to nurture and grow our faith. We talk about being in community with other people of faith where they begin to challenge you in faith. And we talk about serving, going out and helping others know about this God.
When Zachariah told her what the angel said, she believed the unbelievable story that her husband had just told her. And to her, it was more than the story. It was the promise of God. It was his word. And Elizabeth and the baby needed an environment of faith around her. And it may have been one of the reasons why Zachariah's mouth was closed. The womb of trust needs to be nurtured with God's word and with people who believe the promise of God's word. And do you have people like that around you? I've asked Bob Strauman to come and, yeah, and share his story. I told him I'd give him five minutes, and I went uh, a minute or more over, so I'll let you have a minute to go over, too. Um, but, uh, oh, you've got that. Yeah, but Bob, Bob came to our men's uh, retreat this last spring, and then also um, came to me at one point and said, could I be in a community of people who are authentic and real and, and studying God's word? And I said, sure, and I have, he's been meeting with us and. I thought, Bob, why don't you just share your story? Thank you, Kevin. And I'll take the extra minute. (laughs) The Christmas song, Mary Did You Know, has some real significance to me. As there's a lot of things that I did not know, most specifically the difference between knowing God, knowing of God, and knowing God. In the past, it was easy for me to hide behind my family lineage and perfectionism. But I stand here today with the gentle hands of God, telling you my story of the significance of how my faith has impacted me. It's been disturbing, exciting, and rather life-changing. You see, I grew up 100% Norwegian. I grew up in a family that believed strongly that faith was important. We attended church. We took a great deal of pride in how we looked and our perception in the church. We did all the things that we were supposed to do. This 100% Norwegian thing I was very prideful about as opposed to being proud of, and there is a significant difference. And I've had to work my way through it. I'm not trying to be critical of my family because, to the contrary, I'm exceedingly proud of them. But I've had to work through this issue for my own personal self-belief that I'm good enough. You see, my grandfather was a Lutheran free church pastor, could talk for an hour without blinking an eye. I had two uncles that were ELCA pastors. I have four cousins that were ELCA pastors. We attended church every Sunday. We did everything that we were supposed to do to be a good member of the church. We looked good. Matter of fact, we looked really good. And I knew that I knew of God. I knew that I was supposed to have faith, but I did not completely understand that I did not have a relationship with God. Now, you might ask, well, how did this journey start after all these years growing up in this ELC environment? Happened a few years ago when the most important person in my life asked me this really relevant question. Other than your lineage, Bob, tell me about your relationship with God. You know that old Batman and Robin uh, TV series where Batman and Robin would hit an evil guy and you'd see this call out that said smash or bang. 
There would be no sound. That's exactly what happened to me. Being an overly prideful Norwegian, I did what every Norwegian would do. I clammed up. I, I hid behind my Norwegian emotional shield, said nothing, as opposed to saying what I should have said, which is, what a fabulous question. Can you help me do that? Like this cartoon character, I was absolutely filled with uh, shame. I got quiet. I w someone was challenging my perfectionism. And I hated this guilt and shame that after all these years, I realized that I had a deep faith, but I didn't have a relationship with God. And this started really a period of maturity. I ran across a passage as I was preparing for today, which was found in Romans 12, verses 2, that said something like this. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person, changing the way you think. And despite the fact that there was a single event that triggered this for me, what I've discovered is that a relationship with God is not an event. It's an ongoing lifetime experience that takes a lot of effort. You know, I've been blessed with a lot of great people in my life. And I've realized how little I know. It's rather scary to realize how little I know. And I've discovered that this relationship with God and the relationship with people around me is so closely intertwined. And it's been life-changing in how I view so many things. And I have a rambling little blog that I do periodically and I post. And I want to read a section because I think it's relevant to what we're talking about. I remember the days when I was younger when I would be told that something was not possible. I would think, I'll show them I can do it. I didn't like, didn't like others doubting me. I felt insecure in being challenged about something I believed in. How self-centered I was to feel and believe this. How self-righteous I was in thinking that I was that good and that I did not need other people's help. How disrespectful I was to those who wanted to provide input to enhance the outcome. Too prideful comes to mind. I insulted God and I insulted the person who asked the question when I didn't even respond and acknowledge it. Now you might wonder, what does that have to do with my faith and my relationship with God? It has everything to do with my faith and relationship with God. I discovered I'm a sinner. I'm far from perfect. That God has this unconditional love and grace that's filled with forgiveness. I'm calmer, more relaxed, more inquisitive, and my perspective on things has filled, uh, is changed. I'm more comfortable accepting criticism and not allowing people to feel like they walk on eggshells because they're challenging me. And it's dramatically changed my relationship with people, but it's changed my relationship with God because God keeps telling me that I'm a sinner. Susie Larson is a friend of mine on Facebook. Friend. I've never met her. Um, and she posts prayers every, every morning. And one of them says, may you get a glimpse of his plan for you, just enough to inspire you to make the necessary changes. I was given a glimpse. I realized that I'm a child of God and that my parent, as my parent, I need to listen to God for guidance. I need to stop acting like a snarky teenager and recognize that this parent has wisdom, knowledge, and honestly cares about me. And that I can have an honest conversation with him and then be patient for the answer. 
This growing relationship with God has given me just a fabulous, wonderful gift. A gift of greater wisdom, love, patience. And I want to end this long five minutes with a short prayer that I wrote after reading part of Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. God, I pray asking for continued guidance and for you to continue to placing a gentle hand on my shoulder in helping me to live a quiet, purpose-driven life of conviction, a life with purpose, what I believe, and why I believe it. And oh yes, to continue to embrace life with passion, fun, and adventure. Thank you. Thanks, Bob.